Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. Let's play a quick game. Hold up five fingers and put a finger down for each statement that's true. Number one, your ability to find free food is a legit skill set you admire in yourself. Number two, you've snuck a flask into a bar so you didn't have to pay for drinks. Number three, you're using a phone with a cracked screen or an extremely unreliable computer that's been on its last leg for longer than you would like to admit. Number four, at the end of your hotel stay, you take all the unused toiletries like the tiny bottle of shampoo. And number five, the majority of the furniture in your place you got for free from family members or Craigslist. So how many fingers do you have left up? If you have two or less fingers up, I Need a Dollar by Alo Block probably hits a little different. My guest today knows a thing or two about this stage of life. Erin Lowry is the author of the three-part book series, Broke Millennial. Her newest book, Broke Millennial Talks Money, shares advice on how to navigate awkward financial conversations at work and with your friends, family, and romantic partners. If money has ever caused awkward tension when it comes to splitting the bill or picking an Airbnb for your upcoming girls trip, this conversation is going to be perfect for you. Most of this episode centers around having money conversations with your friends. Erin shares her thoughts on when it's appropriate to share how much you make, setting financial expectations when your friend asks you to be in their wedding, and why creating a friend fund might be what you need to say yes more often. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the financial translator, three-time author, and once broke millennial herself, Erin Lowry. Erin, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to have this chat. Yeah, so you um, started a blog called Broke Millennial, which turned into a three-part book series, um, Broke Millennial, Broke Millennial Takes On Investing, and then Broke Millennial Talks Money. Um, really excited about the last one. It was actually the first one that I picked up halfway through your first book. I haven't picked up the second one yet, um, but I really, really like the third book. And what I found through researching is you is like, you're like the poster child broke college graduate out of, out of school. Like you moved to New York city, you're trying to do the whole New York city while also working three jobs and barely making anything. (laughs) Uh, What was that time of your life like? (laughs) Tiring. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny because I don't think anybody has ever summed it up like that, but it is very true. The, and to also add on to the poster child, I was a double major in journalism and theater. So quote unquote, not practical majors, which I have a lot of issue with that rhetoric because I think they're wildly practical and I am where I am today because of those majors, but we can get on that soapbox later. Man, my early twenties were both fun and exhausting. I was working as a barista at a very well-known mermaid logoed coffee chain. I was working for The Late Show with David Letterman, which isn't even on the air anymore, which always makes me feel real old when I say that. (laughs) And for context, I'm 31 now. I graduated in 2011. And then I was a babysitter. So I had multiple different babysitting gigs. So there were a lot of days where my morning looked like 4.30 a.m. wake up call. 
I lived in Queens at the time. So I would wake up, take the train in. I worked at a Starbucks in Manhattan. I would work the morning shift. Then I would sometimes run back home to Queens, shower, come back into Manhattan to work my late show shift, even though it's called late show. We recorded it in the middle of the day. And then I would get off of that job at like six-ish. And then I would go babysit usually until around 10 or 11. So I would get maybe four or five hours of sleep, rinse and repeat doing that. The babysitting was like three to four days a week. So sometimes I got more sleep, but I was working every day of the week, most weeks. And I would take home a lot of leftovers <laughs> from all the different jobs to sustain my grocery budget. Yeah, that's like my favorite thing about your story too, because it's so relatable. I, I work a, a part-time catering job too, and I definitely subsidize my grocery budget by bringing home tons of leftovers. So whenever I heard you speak on that, uh, I thought that was hilarious. And you, you even talked about like the family would give you cab money at late night. So you, rather than like actually taking the cab though, you would pocket that money and go on the subway. Just like hundred things that all of us, you know, out of college have to do in order to like make a few extra bucks or save a few extra bucks. Yeah. And also, I mean, I understand from the perspective, especially with babysitting, the parents are like, it's safer at 1130. And I was like, it's fine. I'm fine. Also, you and your early twenties are always like, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. <laughs> so, and luckily it all, it was fine. New York city subways are great. Everybody who is either super wealthy or doesn't live here has a very bad impression of them. They're wonderful, maybe a little dirty, but perfectly safe. I will say too, with the catering, at least the food that you're eating is probably not like a thousand percent sodium. I really wonder how much damage I did to my heart slash whole body eating like bistro boxes and paninis meal after meal after meal for a long time. And to top it all off, when I worked at Letterman, a, what, what was the store called steak and shake? I think the chain was moved in next door. And as a, like, we're new to the neighborhood, everybody that worked, I worked as a page was my title. So like, yes, like Kenneth, the page on 30 rock, I worked as a page for the late show. We all got little booklets where once a week we could get a free meal mm. at steak and shake. So all of us were sustaining off of those like massive milkshakes and like huge burgers. <laughs> oh God! At least once a week, I was having like a 7,000 calorie lunch at steak and shake. So man, that time of my life, my body was like, what are you doing? And my brain's like, Hey, you're 22. You're fine. Yeah. Yeah. The, the page, um, program, isn't that pretty competitive at 30 rock? So I CBS, my friend CBS, that's a go into, there's a great book about the late night wars when everything happened. So Letterman back in way back in the day was NBC. Then there was the bitter feud for the tonight show. And then he ended up over at CBS. You are correct that the NBC page program is super competitive, gotcha. but Letterman pages are technically also not even employed by CBS. We were employed by his production company. Wow. So we were our own little island of pagedom, which was a ton of fun. I think of it kind of like a gap year. You know how you hear those people who like go travel the world or whatever after college. I'm like, I just had a really fun job in entertainment, but I also had to work two other jobs to sustain my life. <laughs> so you're not as impressive as I thought then, huh? <laughs> well, it's still competitive, but no, not nearly as competitive. Uh, I still just got to watch famous people do interviews and hear amazing musicians every day at my job. Like it's, that's, 
That's cool. It was so cool. That, that part of it was amazing. And you would have just random interactions with famous people that would like come through the backstage area. And at the time being 22 and wanting to work in entertainment and being new to New York, I was like, I just saw Adam Scott from Parks and Rec. We made eye contact highlight of my week. (laughs) That is neat. That's neat. So um, Broke Millennial, that started out with a conversation, a late night conversation with a friend, isn't it? I did a fellow page friend. So at the time that program is a one-year program. You get ushered out essentially at your one-year mark. And we were both, I was working in public relations at the time. She was working as an executive assistant at a not to be named major media company. And she hated her job. And I was really confused. We were 23 at this point. And I was like, well, you moved to New York to be an actress, like pretty classic story. And you're not really doing anything in alignment with that. So if you're 23, she didn't have kids, wasn't married, didn't have any debt, like no student loans, no anything. And her parents were a financial fallback if everything went sideways. Perfect time to take major career risk. And I pretty bluntly said that it was like two o'clock in the morning. We had, you know, been out having a time. We're having a sober up coffee, cup of coffee in our neighborhood in Astoria, Queens. And I was like, I, I just don't really understand why you're not waitressing, nannying, kind of, you know, like the classic flexible jobs that you need to do. She looked at me and she goes, well, I just don't like to think about money. All I do is hope I have enough at the end of the month. Mm. And I know it sounds really silly, but that was a light bulb moment for me. And I say that because what you grow up around is normal. And I grew up in a family where we talked about money a lot and not in a stressful way, like very much just in an educational way. There were a lot of learning lessons along the way. And even when I wasn't making very much, and I also need to remind people, journalism theater double major. I was not like a math savant. I was not into math. So this has nothing to do with being good at math. I never really felt stressed about controlling money. I I felt stressed at times about how much I had, but not about whether or not I felt in control. And so her saying that to me just really resonated. And then I started trying to engage in money conversations with other people, just kind of seeing like, well, is this her or is this a thing? Like, do other people feel this way? No one wanted to talk. So like, cousins, friends at work, friends from college. No one wanted to talk about money. I had a couple of exceptions to that rule. And that really got me thinking like something is a a gap here. People aren't talking about this. This is important. I also, I mean, if anything is like a taboo subject, I just want to kick it like a hornet's nest. Like I am all about digging into those conversations. And After that, so that conversation probably happened in the fall and I was, you know, noodling, noodling, noodling. What do I want to do with this? And ultimately easiest lift It's 2013 at the time blog. So, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money on it. I loved writing. It was a way for me to also have a creative outlet. I did not know personal finance blogging was a thing. I had never read a personal finance blog before I started my own. I was just kind of like, I'm going to write about money and see if people enjoy it. And that is how it started originally. Things have changed a lot since it was like January 23rd, 2013, I think was the day of my first post. Mm. 
Do you remember what you first wrote about in that post? Donuts and Dollars, the same story that kicks off my first book, which is all about the quote unquote Krispy Kreme story that I tell. My first lesson with money, my dad agreed to cover the cost of me selling Krispy Kreme donuts at my mom's yard sale. Also, as a disclaimer, my parents weren't very big on handing over money. So if my sister wanted something or I wanted something, we had to kind of like figure out how to be little entrepreneurs and earn money to buy it. I was seven. And he agreed to go pick up Krispy Kreme donuts. I sold it obviously at a markup price to people coming to my mother's yard sale. I made number fluctuates every time I tell the story because I don't actually remember I was seven, like 20 bucks. And then my dad comes over, looks at the pile of quarters. I'm like, I'm going to go buy a Nerf gun super soaker at Toys R Us. All right, Toys R Us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And He's like, well, I bought the donuts and that cost $8. And then your sister worked for you for a little bit. So it's like, give her $2. So really your net profit is $10. And then he took the money. It wasn't just like, this is what it is. It was like, no, no, I'm taking this money back to teach you a lesson about net profit. And that is my money origin story. I've used that a lot in conversations about educating people with money because your first memories of money are these incredibly foundational pieces of your overall journey. Like we are getting messaging when we are children, our money relationships are coding between the ages of about seven to 10, 12. So who's teaching you? Your parents. And if they're not teaching you directly, it's indirectly. It's you asking how much do you make and them telling you that's rude or that's taboo or we don't talk about that. Or it's you asking for something at the store and them saying, we can't afford that. Even if your family could afford it, it's the language that they use to talk to you about it. So I love using those early money memory at the time that I wrote that story in 2013. I just thought it was a cute story. I did not know that the psychology of money is so entwined. It's something I've certainly learned along the way. And brokemillennial.com really just served as a place for me to share a lot of the stories. It's sort of also a, a journal of my early 20s living in New York and just trying to financially make things work. <laughs> think we all got that story. <laughs> when did you know the Broke Millennial blog was something that might be more than just a little side journal that you were writing? That's a great question. There's a couple of defining moments along the way. I can remember the first time I had an editor at an actual publication tweet, like Twitter was where everything was happening at the time. And a report or an editor rather commented on a blog post and it's like, oh, I really enjoyed your writing. And I asked, well, could I freelance for you? Like anytime somebody mentioned liking it, I was like, what can I do? (laughs) Let's work together. And that was really my first big writing gig, which at the time was AOL's daily finance. I also got to come in and talk to the AOL interns one summer about kind of like how to handle money And then once speaking gigs started to roll in and offers to do that kind of stuff, like, oh, maybe I'm kind of onto something here. And then the media started to happen. And the big, biggest media hit I had early on was CBS Sunday morning. And that kicked off the book series. Mm. So it was that media exposure that a literary agent saw me on CBS Sunday morning, went to the blog, liked what he saw, emailed me, asked if I, if I had ever thought about writing a book. And 
and a frustrating to anyone who's ever wanted to write a book hearing this is like, it's a very serendipitous story. I don't have like a, I emailed 35 publishers and everybody declined and 36 said yes. It's not, it was very honestly easy yeah. for me. And I had huge imposter syndrome around that because it felt like, well, what gives me the right to like, have it be this easy? I like, I remember reading Tim Ferriss and him talking about all the declines. I'm like, Tim Ferriss couldn't even get a deal. What gives me the right to get a deal? And my dad actually very pointedly said, well, you have been putting in the work. So at the time I'd had the blog for about two, three years. He's like, you've been doing this for three years. You have proof of concept. That's why it's easier. It's not like you're a complete unknown. You already have a foundation. If you had just been pitching without anything, then they probably would have said no 20 something times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you set yourself up financially working a whole lot in order to make those decisions. I think you even like declined a job offer because they wanted you to shut the blog down because of conflict Dead. of interest. Like, <laughs> yep. That's not just serendipity. <laughs> like, like there, there really was like a path to, to that whenever you, you know, retrospect, respectively, like look back on that journey. Um, which I find really interesting. Like I said, it doesn't sound really intentional, but um, but it is fascinating. Your journalism um, comes in really handy with this book series too. You often mention that you're not an expert in these areas. Um, obviously, you've learned a ton about personal finance, but you interview a lot of people on a lot of specific areas um, that you think um, might be helpful for somebody in this demographic. You mentioned you're a translator. Was there a subject in one of your three books that didn't come really easy to you? Like you, the you whole investing book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. I somewhat joke that the reason I wanted to write it was to just learn more about investing and that I was going to be forced to learn more about investing because I was writing a book about investing. I, I was of course investing already when I started the book, but not in any sort of you know, oh, follow my journey. I'll teach you how to make multi-million dollars buying oh Bitcoin and NFTs type stuff, which also if people are doing that scam. <laughs> and I just had, you know, my 401k, my IRA, I had opened maybe like one mutual fund that was sort of a fumble. I probably shouldn't have opened that particular mutual fund, which I learned while writing the book. And then I let's see, this would have been 2018 that I was writing this. So I still, I had a couple of taxable, so not retirement investments in some index funds, which is pretty much still, even after writing the book, how I do most of my investing. It's like pretty basic, long-term value investor. I do a little bit of stock picking here and there, kind of just for educational purposes, a little bit for like, ooh, maybe I will make a good pick but no more than just about 5% of my portfolio. But I, and I maintain to this day, investing really is psychology. Like at the end of the day, so much about our relationships to investing has to do with the psychology of everything. And there was a lot of that through the book. The other reason I really wanted to write the investing book is, well, people reading my first one, getting it together and then be like, what's next? And a couple of people had emailed me because there's a very small retirement investing chapter in the first book. 
And I have some recommendations at the end, like, Hey, if you want to learn more, here are some tried and true investing books. And folks had also started to email me to be like, Hey, picked up those books and they're still kind of complicated. Got anything else? And that's what I said to my publisher. I'm like, listen, there's truly no actual beginner's guide because everybody that's writing these are, you know, 30 year experience investing industry vets and don't think about the fact that like your average person doesn't actually know what compound interest means or what the term time horizon is or what an index fund is or really even what a stock is. So we need to back it all the way up to, I assume, you know, absolutely nothing except for that you're interested in investing when you open that book. Yeah. And it's, um, it's intimidating. Like it, it is a very complex industry that uses a lot of jargon and almost all of our first experience with investing is opening up your 401k at work, uh, going through the process, selecting how much you're going to invest, and then getting to the page where you have to select what investment you're going to invest in. And you're like, I don't know what any of this means like you what just is going on <laughs> described a chapter of the book like, <laughs> in the second book i talk about that I'm like, i got to that page i was like what is dodge and cox what is large cap what is mid cap what what do these words mean i just clicked out and called my dad <laughs> and i'm very lucky that i have a dad who is an investor yeah and knows a lot about this stuff the average person can't just do a phone a friend, phone your dad situation necessarily. So it is really important too that we have resources out there. So also the people, and here's my big PSA for this whole podcast episode. So if you have a 401k or an IRA for the love of God, please go check it, rate, like pause it right now, go check it and make sure your money is not sitting in cash. I cannot tell you how many times I have had people at Instagram, because I post this all the time on Instagram, DM me and be like, I just checked and it's been sitting in cash for three years. And I also know of people who 30, 40 years from now go to retire and it's been sitting in cash. Now, the next question is always, how do I know? So there's a couple of ways. One, the market's been doing real well lately. And we're recording this, by the way, because when you're listening, it might not be, but On April 8th, so in April of 2021, the market has been doing incredibly well through the pandemic. If you have been diligently investing, but your 401k or IRA kind of looks like a savings account, like the money that you're putting in is the only amount of money that's still in there, you are not invested. It should definitely be increasing. The other way to know is if you go in your main page, once you like click in and you see I don't know how else to describe it other than the landing page once you've gone in and you can see like my investments. Yeah. If the words are either settlement account or cash or cash management account attached to anywhere that your money is sitting, it's not invested. And the third way, you know, call up the person by person, I mean, brokerage. So I'm just going to name some names. These are not endorsements. You might be with Fidelity, you might be with Vanguard, you might be with Charles Schwab, Betterment, Wealthfront, what have you. If you don't know, and because you have 401k through work, ask HR who has it, ask for the customer service line, give them a call, be like, hey, just want to check, is my money actually invested or is it sitting in cash? Hmm. That's a great PSA. Because the last thing I want is somebody to think that they're doing all the right things for 15 straight years and then realizing, oh crap, 
this has just been sitting around and missing out on some huge, huge gains um, and not starting from scratch, but you know, not really getting very far either. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly important. And because your 401k and your IRA don't default to you being invested, it defaults to just being in a settlement account or like a cash management account until you pick your investment. So if you get to that landing page and freak out and click out and then kind of forget to ever go back in and pick your investments, you might be diligently contributing, but it's sitting in cash. So please double check. Yeah. So let's uh, shift gears here. Let's talk about talking about money, um, particularly with your friends. First, um, do you think we should share how much we make with our friends? It's a trap. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that that is always a good idea. And I say that because one, talking about the psychology of envy, it was an interesting point that came up when I was talking to a financial psychologist, Brad Klontz for the book. And he talks about how like, listen, human instinct, we're going to be jealous of people who have more than we have. Like if you are at the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you're not spending a whole lot of time thinking about people who have less than you, but you are fixated on anyone who has more than you. So if we're talking about friendship dynamics, I worry that it can be fundamentally toxic to share hard numbers on salary slash income. Unless the only caveat really being If you work in comparable fields and one of you is going in for a negotiation and you're just trying to get a sense of what the market bears in your industry, that's really kind of the only time where it might make sense to be like, hey, you work next level up at the job that I want to have. I'm trying to negotiate to reach to that level. Could you tell me what your ballpark salary is so I have a good sense going into my negotiation if I'm being fairly compensated? That's kind of the only time. And even in that case, like maybe just ask some other people and not your friends where I do think you should consider sharing numbers, or at least speaking of the existence is with debt. And that sounds kind of bonkers to a lot of people. Like I'm not going to share the good news, but I'm going to share the bad news. Like, why am I going to tell my friends that I have $50,000 of student loans? You do it for a couple of reasons. One could be accountability could be working to pay it off. Maybe your friend has student loans too. Maybe you guys create like a little accountability buddy group. That's always good. But more importantly, it gives them context. People are very self-centered just by kind of default. So if you keep opting out of group functions because you know the reason is you have either student loans or credit card debt or what have you, And you're like, I just can't afford to keep doing these things that they're asking me to do. And you just keep saying, no, no, no. One, people stop asking. And two, your friends are going to think it's about them. They're not going to think that it's you and your financial situation. They're going to think that they've done something wrong. So saying something along the lines of, yeah, of course, pandemic's over. I would love to take an I'm also saying like, yay, hopefully pandemic's over and we're getting (laughs) vaccinated. I'm not saying it is over, (laughs) but let's say we're at the point where like, yeah, pandemic's over. We haven't actually seen each other in person in a year and a half because we don't live near each other. And I would love to hop on a plane and come see you right now. But I also lost my job partway through the pandemic and I have $7,000 of credit card debt that I racked up. 
So I'm really trying to work my way out of that hole before I do a trip. That's great context for your friends, as opposed to, no, I'm not coming. Mm -hmm. Two very different situations. And you don't have to give hard numbers if you don't want, but just saying, actually, I have some student loans that I'm trying to pay off, or I have some credit card debt I'm trying to pay off is completely acceptable as well. But I do like the idea of being honest about that side of our financial lives with our friends. The salary side, consider whether it's actually going to accomplish anything positive, or maybe it might make people either judgmental. If you decline an invitation and your friend just found out that like, Hey, you make $120,000 and you're like, yeah, I can't quote unquote afford to come to brunch. They're going to have some feelings about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle that situation? If you get invited or get an invitation to something that you just really don't value. (laughs) Don't say you don't value it. (laughs) Also don't say you can't afford it. I do think that that's a big misstep that a lot of folks make, myself included at times, was to say like, oh, we can't afford to do that. Oh, that's a lie. We could have afforded to do it. We just didn't want to do it, which is two very different things. And if people find out that you could afford it and you chose not to, it also like causes some feelings. So one, I always love a compliment sandwich. Anytime you're dealing with these awkward conversations, especially with friends, I'd love to see you and spend some time with you, but I don't really want to drop $50 on brunch. Do you mind if we go grab a bagel and go for a walk in the park? Mm. And the thing that I love about that is it, you know, positive, love you, want to spend time with you. Then you say no to whatever the invite is, but then you also provide a counter. And you can also give a no plus context. So it could be like, I don't really want to spend $50 on brunch because right now we are trying to save up for a down payment on a house and like every little bit counts right now. Or I am trying to pay off some credit card debt. So I'm really trying to add an extra $500 to my payment by the end of the month. Whatever you want to contextualize with is really helpful. And then offering a counter also makes the pill a little easier to swallow. Just remember, they can say no. It's okay if they still want to do the originally planned thing. I do think sometimes people do get upset if their friends all want to go to a concert and they don't want to go to that concert. And their friend's like, okay, we'll see you later. And you have to deal with seeing it on Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and whatever. Oh, well. Because they're allowed to, to continue forward with their plans. They are. And the thing is, you're also allowed to have different value sets. Now, one thing I would really consider though, At some point, you have to decide how much you want to invest into the relationship emotionally and financially, Mm. because if you and your friends, especially as you grow in age, start to have different value sets, it's also important sometimes to like indulge a little in what your friend likes to do and vice versa. I like the idea of having a friend fund, especially if you're in a phase of life where like you don't have a ton of discretionary income, but you're putting a little bit aside every month, every paycheck. So that when your friends do ask you to do things, sometimes you can just give that enthusiastic yes. Or if sometimes it's like, you know, I don't love going to the movies. It's like not my thing. I'd rather just watch it at home for a much cheaper price, but my friend loves going to the movies. So fine, I will go to the movies with you this time. Hmm. Don't make it sound like a chore. Like that's the internal monologue in your head. 
but it is important to just sometimes support what your friends want to do. It doesn't have to be every time they ask, but that is part of a relationship dynamic too. It's not just you getting your way all the time or just you saying no and opting out. I think about that in, you know, romantic relationships. My husband loves football. I can't stand football, but sometimes I sit and watch a game with him because it's important to him. Compromise. Yeah. Yeah. I see um, money and time are often pretty similar. The same of the whole, um, you know, I can't afford that. I hear a lot of times I don't have time for that. Uh, And then like a week later, you see someone take a weekend vacation somewhere else. And you're just like, I thought you didn't have any time right now. Like what the heck? Or I thought you couldn't afford to do that. Um, So yeah, it's super interesting. I love the idea of a friend fund as well. Do you use that concept currently in your life? We're at a slightly different place financially. We're more financially stable now. I did use it at different Mm -hmm. times of my life. So we are more, we have more flexibility, I would say in our month to month budget. They're like, if I want to go out with my friends, I can afford to do that. But in my very broke millennial days, I actually did have a little, at first when I was making a lot of cash, I did have a little cash envelope. It was just, it said fun fund on the front. And I would put like that cab money that I would get. I would usually put that in the fun fund because that was complete extra gravy money. Like it was not money I was ever expecting. So I always felt good putting that in the like four funsies in the future kind of fund. These days, though, one of the things that we have been doing, my husband and I, is we have a, I've jokingly been calling it the let's go rage fund, (laughs) because as the pandemic starts to wrap up, we are now both totally vaccinated. We live in New York City. Things are slowly starting to reopen. We have been setting money aside every month so that we can just like go to the nice restaurants, go buy the Broadway tickets, like everything that we felt like we haven't had that we've been denied. I mean, I know everybody is about to like gorge themselves. Mm -hmm. Like you're at a dessert buffet. And I was like, well, let's just financially brace for that a little bit. And so we have been putting money aside for being able to just indulge without thinking about our budget. Mm -hmm. I am a true, true fan of saving for slash investing for opportunities slash options. And what I mean by that is you don't have to conclusively know whether or not you want to do something, but setting money aside so that when you get there, you can make an informed choice with the finances being available to you is really helpful. So I'll break it down for something personal. I don't know if we want kids. Like I'm like on the fence about whether or not I want a kid, but I also would like to get to a point that if in two years, I'm like, yeah, let's have a kid. We actually have money already in a savings account so that I don't have to think about like, okay, how are we going to reorganize all of our finances to make this happen? So we actually have a fund, a savings fund that we put money aside every single month into that fund. We have benchmarks of where we'd want to be so that, Hey, if in two years I am like, all right, yeah, let's do this. Ready to start extending or expanding the family. We have that ready to go. And if we decide, eh, you know what, child-free, we kind of like this. We're going to keep doing this. We can take a great trip. Mm -hmm. We could put it towards another big savings goal we have. We can just redirect that money. So that is something that to me, not something that everybody does, but to me as someone who's also like very future oriented and very like financially oriented, it makes me feel good to be saving for specific options so that I can make decisions with the money there when the time comes. 
Yeah. Agreed. Uh, and, and you must fall into, in your first book, I think you broke it in the three teams and that team dreaming about retirement Yes, also fall into that. And it's funny because, um, where that first team, like YOLO FOMO budgeting feels really restrictive for them for dreaming about retirement team. Um, I think a budget's actually really empowering because it allows me to spend that money. Like I said, if I created a, a, a friend fund, uh, then I can act, I feel empowered to just say yes to that because I know I already have that money set aside. Um, so I, I think that's super interesting. Uh, and I really like that. You mentioned, you, you talk openly now about, um, I don't know if regret's the right word, but I'm going to use regret in here and you can change it however you want, but how you um, regret maybe in your early and mid twenties saying no um, often to your friends and, and, you know, instead of going out with your friends, you pick up that extra babysitting job, um, because you do some kind of cost benefit analysis. What are you doing differently? Or what do you wish you would have done differently at that age of your life? Regret is the right word. Yeah. I did not invest into relationships well in my early twenties, it always makes me giggle when I'm on like money panels and inevitably that kind of question, like, what would you have done differently with money in your early twenties? And you go down, everybody's like, I would have saved, I would have invested. And it gets to me. I'm like, I would have spent more money. You are always like, wait, what? And I think about it more in terms of the $20, let's say that obviously rose colored glasses. Now hindsight being 2020, whatever cliche you want to use $20 is not a hugely significant life altering sum to me today at 31 in my life, being married to income household, all that jazz at 22, 23, $20 felt like a very significant sum of money. So if I had the option to make $20 or spend $20 at a bar, I was going to always opt to make it. But I also noticed by the time I was about 25, 26, I had said no without context so many times to so many friends that I had made in my early twenties. And so just like with romantic relationships, if people keep asking you out and you say, no, they're going to stop asking same with platonic. Nobody likes to hear no. And if you keep rejecting people over and over and over, they're just going to stop inviting you. Now, you know, people who will push back against me saying this will be like, well, not everybody's a forever friend. And maybe those just weren't your people. I'm like, yeah, you know, that could be true. But also I think a lot of my like, Ooh, really fun experiences and nights came from my later twenties because I was more willing to do stuff at that point. I don't have a lot of like awesome friend memories from my early to mid twenties, because I was so restrictive with myself and with my money. And that makes me kind of sad in retrospect. Like that Mm -hmm. should have been a time in my life where I was enjoying things a bit more than I was allowing myself to. And I do mean that financially and you don't have to spend a ton of money, like going to the bars with your friends. You don't have to drop a ton of money. You can get one drink and just enjoy being around people. Or you can get a soda and not even have to spend the money for like a craft cocktail at $19 in New York City. Or you can see if somebody will buy you a drink. You know, that (laughs) happens if you're comfortable with that. It just is something that I always want to caution people who get really fixated on the future because I am one of you. I see you. I hear you. I totally understand 
people who get to like fire blog. So financial independence, retire early. Sometimes people get to those blogs or books really early or podcasts. And, you know, at 23 are so hung up at this idea of like being a millionaire by 30. Yeah. Okay. If you're a millionaire by 30, that's great. But do you have memories? Do you have experiences? Are you, do you feel like you've lived a rich life or do you feel like you just look rich on paper? And it's really critical to learn how to balance the two. I did not do that well in my early twenties. There's even times now where my husband would be like, could you chill? Like, I do think it is important to find somebody who brings a level of balance, not like where he's a spender, I'm a saver. No, I just mean like somebody who from a money psychology perspective can bring you a, a sense of balance. I will also tie this into, in my thirties, I feel like I'm much better at investing in friendships. For instance, um, would have been about two years ago, one of my dearest friends from high school was turning 30. She lives in Nashville. Her girlfriend was hosting a surprise party. She told me and another friend of ours just being like, don't expect you to come at all, but we did want you to feel included. My other friend and I were like, yeah, let's just go. Like I can buy a plane ticket and we're staying at her house. So that's cheap. So yeah, let's do this. The reaction on my friend's face, being able to be there that whole weekend, like truly one of my favorite memories from that year. And I am so glad that I invested into that. So sometimes it's moments like that. Now on the flip side, I'm not very into like material goods in a lot of ways. I'm very bad experiences, which you can probably have heard from everything I've been saying. Recently, my husband and I moved. I lived in Queens for almost a decade. We recently moved into Manhattan. Pandemic rental prices, guys. <laughs> and our furniture at our old place, like I had a couch that I bought the week I moved to New York. It literally was broken. Like the frame was broken. It would sag when you sat into it. It was all sorts of painful. I'm like, yeah, we're going to move soon. I don't want to buy a new one. So we finally upgraded our things spent quite a bit of money upgrading our things in this apartment. And I said recently, I don't know why I wouldn't invest in my living space earlier. Like this feels very good. I really like this feeling. What principle was I standing on that? I thought it was cool. As I described our home to look recently robbed chic, (laughs) like this feels nice. It, yeah, it costs some money, but also the like emotional return I'm getting is worth the money. Mm. So I'm going on this whole spiel just to say, yes, saving is important. Investing is important, but so is balance. Yeah. And please consider that for yourselves, no matter your phase of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough to find that balance for sure. Um, to say yes to enough things, um, not say yes to too many things. And then a- afterwards, you're like, why did I spend money on that. I didn't want to actually do that. I didn't have fun. Um, and then on those material things as well, I'm just like you as well. I, uh, really resonated with like the whole, like, I didn't have a TV stand for like the first three years of my life. And <laughs> yeah. then Peach finally made me buy a TV stand. Cause like, and I could put his video games in there. I'm like, oh yes, I totally, I totally agree with that. My girlfriend is very much like Peach, um, where she's like, no, we're going to get that. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, okay, perfect. Or like, no, we're going to spend $20 to like upgrade or have someone do this because it's going to cost us like five hours, if not. And it's like, come on, value your time a little bit. So uh, totally agree with you. She's, she is my partner that really balances that like super saver mentality there. <laughs> it is so important because it's also hard to switch off. 
right? Like you reach a certain, whether it's a savings goal, a net worth goal, whatever goal that you have, you reach it and you're happy for like five seconds and then it's on to the next goal. And it's that hedonic treadmill where usually that gets explained as like lifestyle inflation. It still works with deprivation and like mm-hmm. money stuff too, that if you just keep fixating on numbers, 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 by the way, I'm not cured. I had a meltdown just the other day about like, I feel like we're not as far along as we should be. And my husband was like, we're further along than I thought I would be in my whole life. So like, you have got to calm down. That's amazing. Um, well, as we're, as we're kind of concluding this conversation, I want to spend just a little bit of time on one of your favorite conversations and that's weddings. (laughs) Uh, Guys, buckle up. (laughs) This is, um, uh, uh, I'm going into the wedding season of my life. Um, you know, how old are you? 27. So bless you. Three or four years. I can Mm -hmm. tell, you know, I've had a couple friends get engaged here recently. I already have a couple weddings this year. I know I'm going to have four or five weddings again next year. And then that's not even counting whatever my girlfriend gets invited to. At one point in time, you calculated how much other people's weddings cost you. What was Mm -hmm. that number? It was over (laughs) $20,000. I know we will crest over 30 by the time we get through this onslaught, which if if my tone is not clear enough, not a huge fan. <laughs> Talk about value sets. <laughs> uh, which funnily enough, we had two weddings ourselves in not pandemic times. We were trendsetters. It's a very long story, but we did not have two full-scale weddings. We had like a, in the city, I would almost describe it as an elopement that immediate family got invited yeah. to. And then we did the, the big fanfare because everybody else wanted. <laughs> that was not necessarily my value, but sometimes you have to compromise with your husband and your parents and your sure. in-laws. Sure. So what, what are like the, that 20,000, what are, what's all the cost involved in a wedding? Well, first you hit the nail on the head with this and whatever my girlfriend gets invited to, because people often forget, it's not just about you if you're in a partnership. Mm-hmm. So it's also that all of a sudden the invites double we're in a uniquely tough bind in that I have like nearly 40 first cousins. So it's been a lot of family weddings. I'm on the younger end of the spectrum. So like, thank God we're mostly through it with the extended family, but even with friends. And I know people are like, I don't have that many friends. Like you'd be, you'd be surprised. I had 12 close friends be invited to my wedding. It's not like I'm like, Oh, I've got, you know, a whole sorority house. I wasn't in a sorority. Like, this is not that this is just that I live in New York city. No one gets married in New York city. So every time somebody gets married, it's a trip. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what it turns into is that also, if you're in the wedding, then you've got the bachelorette party, sometimes the bridal shower and the wedding itself, all of which are trips the dress, the makeup, the hair, the gifts, like there's just so many add-ons to wedding season. To me, it is incredibly critical that you set your financial boundaries, especially if you're going to be in the wedding. Also, if you're in a partnership, you can split up sometimes. Not both people have to go to everything. We've made those decisions before where we just like send a representative of us. So like whoever's person it is, you're the one that goes, especially if it's far away. And if, you know, flights alone might be $600 per person. And then it becomes, and so sorry if anybody is listening to this and I didn't show up to your wedding, but like, listen, if it's going to cost us two grand to go to your wedding, which hotel flights, food, 
gifts. I rewear outfits to weddings. I don't understand people who are like, oh, and then you have to get an outfit for everyone. No, <laughs> who cares? They don't care what you're wearing. You're not the bride. <laughs> unless you're wearing white and you're not the bride and then that's a problem. But otherwise no one cares what you're wearing. Just please rewear or like borrow from people's closets. Coming from the girl in like the black Nike hoodie right now. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Truly, <laughs> truly. Not that I'm giving fashion advice, but like no one cares. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it just has, it just snowballs with the amount, I think, too, of travel. Of course, it's different if you're from a hometown where all your friends are from and everybody's getting married there. That's definitely going to cost a lot less. But you'd be surprised, too, especially if you're getting invited to like bachelor parties, bachelorette parties, bridal showers. My big advice, even if you're in the wedding, they get one. If they're going to have a separate bridal shower and bachelorette party and their wedding and you have to travel for all of them, they get one. Ask them which one. Ask them early. Set that boundary real early. I love you, but I'm invited to three other weddings this year and we have to travel for all of them. So my budget really could only accommodate being coming to either the bachelorette party or the bridal shower. Which do you feel you really want me to attend? It's hmm. great. Word. Things like that. Now, sometimes you meet a bride or groomzilla. They exist. It can be a real strain on a relationship. I, I would like to say, like, give them a, an ounce of empathy. It is a, I have planned a wedding. It is a stressful time. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a thing, but also a plea to anybody out there who is planning a wedding, make it as cheap as possible for the people in it. So for instance, bridesmaids, they should be able to just pick a cocktail dress at knee length in a certain color scheme, or if you want them in a particular gown, add that to your wedding budget and effing pay for it. Yeah. Like there's just <laughs> things that you can do to alleviate the pressure on your loved ones because your wedding should not be costing your friends $3,000. It just shouldn't like that. Sh there's no fairness of that. And even if you have gone through the ringer a bunch yourself, like this doesn't have to be, I'm getting you back. Like it just isn't fair to other people to expect that, especially if they're going to be in multiple weddings. Like Think about if somebody is in three weddings this year and each of those weddings is going to run them $3,000. It's nine grand. Mm -hmm. You could take a baller trip to Europe, like a baller trip to Europe Super for baller. that money. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Weddings are expensive. Um, you have lots of great cost-cutting um, advice or tactics in your book on weddings. What are some of your favorites that you've used? Well, definitely the not attending everything if everything's going to be a trip. Also talking early about what your budget restrictions are with the maid of honor, the bride, whoever's doing some of the planning and providing alternative ideas too. So if somebody comes up with a really cool idea, but it's just crazy expensive, helping brainstorm ways you can bring the cost down. Also looking at secondhand sites for any of the outfits that you're expected to wear for a wedding, particularly if it's like a really popular dresser suit of that season. This is a bit easier for women with the whole dress rent. Men, you also get screwed on the suits and tux rentals. That stuff is expensive. Yeah. So it's not that men come out unscathed in this either. For women, I would also say, if you can do your own makeup, just pay for hair, don't pay for hair and makeup. Also, if you're a bride, pay for hair and makeup. If you're requesting people get their hair and makeup done and I empower you to say no, 
to being in a wedding, you have a sense of your friends, although you'd be surprised Some people turn, you didn't expect it, Mm -hmm. but you have a sense of your friends. And if you think that one friend might be a little difficult as a bride in a way that's not going to be wallet friendly. And you're like, I don't want to spend $3,000 on this person's wedding. I would say no, but then have a caveat. So explain your no, not like, I think you're going to be a bridezilla and waste all of my money. You're like, I love you, but I'll be honest. I just financially don't know that I can afford to do this with the, you know, two other money goals here that I'm trying to achieve, but I definitely want to be there to support you. I would love to come early and help with X. I'd love to take you out to a nice dinner, any sort of thing to make it palatable. And let's see what else I, the, the boundary setting uh, to me is crucial. And then also just making sure that you're communicating along the way, because sometimes you set those boundaries early and they kind of get forgotten slash brushed over and just remind people like, Hey, totally respect if that's what you guys want to do for the bachelorette party. I'll be honest. That's definitely not in my budget. I'm happy to kick in $50 uh, to go towards covering the bride's cost, but I'm not going to be able to attend. You don't have to offer money either. I just always think that like smooth things over a little bit if you are already in the bridal party. But so much of this is just having to have the awkward conversations and to actually borrow one of my favorite quotes from Broke Millennial Talks Money. One of the women I interviewed, Melanie Lockhart, more specific to like the splitting the check at dinner conversation. In the idea of advocating for yourself, her question is, which is gonna win out? The potential embarrassment of the moment or the resentment that you're going to feel afterwards. Mm. And I love that reframe. It's like, listen, yeah, it might be a little embarrassing in the moment to have to set financial boundaries, or if not embarrassing, just awkward. But would you rather that or resenting somebody for possibly months to years, depending on the situation, for having spent so much money? Yeah. I think that perfectly sums up a lot of the conversation we've had today. Um, It's setting boundaries and picking and choosing the battles that you're going to care about. Um, And then if you don't speak up, then it's on you. Uh, And you can continue to resent them or that moment or that event. Um, But honestly, you, you didn't advocate for yourself. So yeah, hopefully um, it is really tough. Like it, that's so easy to say. Um, and it's really tough to do that. But but no, um, I had a blast reading your book. I had a blast talking to you today. Um, I'm sure a ton of people listening are thinking the exact same thing. So if they want to consume more of you, they can check you out on Twitter. You're at Broke Millennial. On Instagram, you're at Broke Millennial Blog. Man, we really got to get that Broke Millennial. <laughs> I know. Somebody is sitting on it, hasn't even posted on it in five years, and I can't <laughs> get her to give it up. Uh, and then, um, obviously, your your three books, you know, if they want to purchase one, two, or all three, uh, where, anywhere books are sold, you also advocate big for um, your local libraries. bookstore. Yep, and libraries. You know, if you can't afford it, go Uh, pick it up at your local library or request it if they don't have it. Um, Anywhere else you would like to point listeners to? No, I think you covered all of it. And I will just also say that every Wednesday on Instagram, I do an ask me anything. So if you have other questions, you can, of course, like DM or email, but those are really back while I'm, I will be totally honest. Takes me a very long time to respond if I even get to respond. And 
definitely just come participate in the AMA. I also have been doing the Ask Me Anythings for over two years and they're all in my highlights. So if you have a question, you can click through and probably find an answer there as well. Mm, cool. Anything else that we should be expecting from you here in the next year? I might be dropping my own podcast. I saw that announcement a couple of months. But it's so, not money related. It will be like money tangential, but it won't be specifically focused on money. I actually am about to take a little bit of a hiatus just because guys, uh, three books is great, but don't do it in four years. You'll get real tired and burned out. It's just all I'm going to say is career advice. And <laughs> so I am going to take just a little bit of time off kind of recoup, kind of figure out what's next for Broke Millennial, especially because I've sort of exhausted all of the big life steps at the moment. So I was like, right, about buying a house or having kids. I'm like, I'm doing neither of those right now. So I can't write about it yet. And I have an idea for a podcast that I think sounds kind of fun. That's not totally money related. So it'll be a way to get to play around in a different area, but it will be having tough conversations will definitely be a theme of that podcast. Cool. And it will be released in the next month. No, I haven't even started. <laughs> okay. Let's okay. Say August. <laughs> August. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, um, we'll be sure to, to share that link once it does, um, get released, uh, out of my Instagram. So super excited for that. My final question for you, Aaron, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16 week class to a group of graduating college seniors, on a topic that maybe isn't always covered in the classroom, what would you teach and why would you teach it? I would first use my third book as coursework to just talk about how to have awkward money conversations. And then two kids that young, to me, the big, big traditional money topics that I don't think get discussed enough, student loans, how they work, how they compound, what you actually are signing at 18 years old, how that money is gonna grow. And I also would do a deep dive on whether or not college is the right pick for you. Hmm. And I say that just because trade school, skilled crafts, like there's so many other ways you can make a really good living that a traditional four-year college is not for. Traditional four-year college is not for everyone. And the amount of debt that some people go into trying to get that degree that, you know, 30 years ago probably paid off these days not always necessarily the same return on investment. And I do feel that there's just so much pressure from parents a lot of times to go to the, just the best possible college that you can get into without a whole lot of thought about the financial ramifications of that choice. So in the theme of tough financial conversations, it would also be like how to tell your parents, no, I'm going to go to the place that gave me that big scholarship, even though it's not the bumper sticker that you wanted to have on the back of your car. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? The trade your, your dream college for your dream life or whatever you say. Yeah. So I said, I gave up going to my dream school to live my dream life because mm -hmm. I was able to go where I got a lot of scholarship money and my parents paid for the other part. So I could graduate debt-free. Now my husband did have $50,000 of student loans when we got married. So don't worry. Millennial curse bit me on the back end. <laughs> I still got it, but it gave me so much flexibility at the start of my career to actually go after things that I truly wanted to do. There's no way I would have branched out to be self-employed with Broke Millennial if I had had huge amounts of student loan debt that I was going to amass if I went to the other school. Hmm. 
Well, Aaron, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for being so candid. Um, I, it was so much fun researching you because I was like, wow, wow. She's like really kind of off the cuff with a lot of things and like really just says what's <laughs> on her mind. I was like, I wonder if that's really how she is. And then um, this conversation really confirmed it. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.